Hi everybody, it's Toby Miller here. Welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. I'm at the Marriott City Centre in Portland. I'm in, with one of my oldest friends, or someone who's tolerated me for longer than most people. <laughs> a great inspiration, I'm sure, to many, if not all, listeners, and certainly to me, Graham Turner. Hello, Graham. How are you? I'm Toby. So what brings you to you know, this rainy, desolate, and yet verdant and beautiful place? It is gorgeous, isn't it? I'm enjoying yeah. it. Well, what brings me is this conference, what is television? And it's, um, I've been working, as you... No, because you've been involved in it too for about the last five or six years on a large project on post-broadcast television, which is really trying to work out what what we know about post-broadcast television. I, mean, yeah. the, the, I think in a way, because things have changed so much and because it's become so varied in so many places, we probably know less about television and how it operates now than we did 20 years ago. No, that's <laughs> because a... it doesn't do the same things and it... The difference between what it does here and what it does elsewhere have become greater Greater. and greater. greater. What would you define broadcast as? Well, free to air, uh, universally accessible, right? um, Right. Free of charge. Yeah, Mm. yeah. Yeah. You'll be pleased to know that the Wall Street Journal reported this week that there is a doubling in antenna sales for television sets in the United States in the last year. It's a new boom. How surprising. Which is pretty bizarre, given that, that they're not great for receiving any television no. anymore. No. Um, but yes, so this is rather like the return to the LP. Well, and it is interesting it? That, that, that broadcasting is actually showing signs of resilience, not necessarily in the United States, but certainly in the UK. Uh, Freeview, the Freeview's a, a consortium of free-to-air channels, and they've, they've released larger amounts of digital spectrum, so instead of only having three or four channels, or five out of the BBC and ITV, you can now get about 40 on Freeview. And in Australia too, same thing, only we only have 16 channels, but both of those have proved um, that broadcasting can compete, with, particularly with cable packaging where they, where they bundle it and they don't allow much selection. So yeah. a, a la carte looks like the future for cable, if it's going to have one, actually. I, I think there's an argument that says that cable or subscription TV is probably more threatened than broadcast in the long term. This is cord cutting, as it's sometimes known, at least mm. here in the United States, yeah. where a new generation of people don't get a home phone in the sense of an immobile phone, and very unwisely in earthquake areas, because of course they have their own electricity supply mm. and they work when cell phones don't and mm. so on, but anyway, that's the choice, and also not getting cable or satellite deals because uh, they're watching things on the internet. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, yeah, I mean, all of these things uh, look a lot more important close up than they do from a distance. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that that, you know, that's one of the features of what television and new media studies have done over the last 20 years, you know, that signs are taken for wonders repeatedly. Repeatedly. Do you think we're captured in the same way as the journalists who write about the new technology and the advertisers who get anxious about it and the regulators who ponder it? Are we too caught up in it? Well, not not necessarily everybody, but certainly I think it's um, it's, it's one of the drawbacks of the kind of work that we do and the way we do it in particular because we tend to give industry spin a lot more credence than we used to. That we're, we're, you know, there, there was there was this kind of universal distrust of anything the industry said about itself when we were looking at broadcast, but with with uh, particularly online and startups and so on, changed. I think they sort of cleansed 
the, the media industry of its association with venal capital and start, they started to look grassrootsy and alternative and that meant that a lot of that um, industry spin and you know and it still was spin um, was taken as, as being the truth <laughs> and I think that there's still a lot of that around and I mean you and I have swapped over the years we've swapped lots of of, uh, of, of blogs from the industry. I mean, you, you sent me a whole bunch of stuff when I started this project, and you watch that, and every week there's another thing that's going to change everything. And every week <laughs> the thing that was going to change everything last week is gone. And so you, you do have to be pretty sceptical about these it things. It reminds me of media effects discourse, yeah. where one week a, a study comes out that says... Mm children are properly educated That's or right. children are completely perverted by television and the next week another comes out and says not so fast buddy mm. on either score it's like that isn't it with these yeah. hysterical highlights that we receive yeah yeah because they're driven by positions and they simply seek information that support that position and out it goes plus i think the desire for apparent newness i mean this is a big yeah. deal perhaps not academically so much uh, in our fields but certainly when it comes to these industry insider blocks. I mean, to show you're an insider, you must have a sense of change as well as yeah. history. And there's got to yeah. be a lot of both yeah, in the right measure. True. And there's got to be more change than history often, I yeah. think. Anyway, so speaking of history, you mentioned that there's been this five-year project, which I guess is has produced quite a lot in the way of certainly one edited book I'm aware of and lots of journal things and so on. Can you tell us a bit about it? Well, the stuff that we're doing now is another, another book on the way. And what it did was look at, really what it wanted to look at was big emerging markets that weren't Anglophone markets. And so it looked at the Asian Chinese language markets and it looked at one of the Latin American markets, which was Mexico. And so the range of places that it's looked at and compared is in the UK, the US, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, uh, Singapore, Hong Kong, Taiwan, People's Republic of China, uh, Cuba, and Mexico. So it's, it's a pretty, <laughs> it's a pretty large bunch of, of uh, study sites. So I've had people who, oh, and India, the, the most recent postdoc I've got working with me, uh, Sukmani Karana, is, is working on India. So I had Jinatay working on Chinese language material and I've got Anna Pertiera still working with me on Spanish language and um, at the moment Anna and I are writing a book, Anna's a cultural anthropologist and a very good one and she's helping me write a book, well actually I'm helping her, <laughs> we're both helping each other write this book about the location of television and the, the, the kind of big, big kind of... <clears throat> basis of it in terms of the material that it's bringing that's new is a big ethnographic study that Anna did of consumption in Mexico and we're building re an argument that's actually much broader than that but we're building it from that empirical base where we've actually spent the war. Well, she spent I guess about eight months, nine months in total in, in Mexico working with families there and just simply mapping the relationship between television and everyday life in ways that you know doesn't get done in cultural well, studies very well, often. Well, there are two uh, Mexican guys here who do ethnographies of TV. I'll introduce you to them because you mm -hmm. might like to, yeah. to meet them. Uh, that's fantastic. So, in answer to the inevitable question, is television dying? You've probably got a more fully international as well as in-depth perspective than anybody at the moment. Yeah, it's definitely not dying. It doesn't seem to me as definitely it is not. from the surface. No, I mean, in, in fact, one guy who used to work with me who wasn't involved in this project 
eventually but was involved at the beginning of it was a guy called Adrian Atik who now works in New Zealand and Adrian works on television in India and uh, film in India. Just he, read his book actually. Yeah, it's a good yeah, book. Isn't he, it? Yeah. He, uh, he argues that actually India, India is only just beginning its age of television and when you look at the data and just the amount of expansion there's been in, in not just cable but free-to-air television a massive uh, expansion of, of uh, 24-hour news channels for instance. Uh, you've got to say that's that's true. So, and that's a pretty large market. You know, you put that together with China again, an expansion going on there. You put those together, that'd be more than fifty percent of the world's television market. Sure. sure. One of the things that my students say to me, uh, and as I think you know, my students are, you know, a third Asian, a third uh, Latino, and the rest are a mixture of African American. Uh, Arab American and Euro so-called European American and all these things have circles in front of them. They say that television is something that they know they'll do when they're thinking about their job and their family and their mortgage. Yeah. And until then, for many of them, unless they live with their parents, it's not something that they will have in their lives, they'll watch things on the telephone, a few yeah. of them, not many, or they'll watch them on the internet through a computer, but it's part of growing up Yeah, I think that's them. true. Look, I think it's always been true, though. I mean, you know, if you watch the demographics for broadcast television 20 years ago, there is a, there is a flat spot that goes from about early teens, 14, 15, through to about 30, which is you know, the period when people have better things to do with their lives. <laughs> we can still almost remember those, that period. So when, when, you know, when they didn't need to watch television, they, they went and did other much more exciting things and then finally that ran out and they had to watch television again. And as they get older, you know, there's nothing left. So, I mean, there is, there is, that, there is that trajectory and it's... It's, it's playing out in slightly different ways now, but you know, you're still looking at pretty much the same pattern, which is the modes of consumption um, are affected by changes in your life and, and the things that you do over, over that period. One of the things that there's a lot of controversy about in this country at the moment within television, not within television studies because we're completely out of touch, but within debates about television, is the industry's obsession with the young consumer. And this based on, as we, as we know, simply the notion that these are people who are malleable. They haven't yet decided on their brand of toothpaste, their brand of car, their brand of anything. And so they're the people you allegedly want if you're an advertiser. Uh, is that true in other parts of the world, that obsession with this, this age group, let's say 18 to, to 25, maybe 18 to 30? No, it's not. It's not um, no, it's not. I mean, it, you, you see it in various ways, but it, it's, it, it really is connected to the way in which television is tied up with modernity, and modernity plays its way, plays itself out in quite different ways in different locations. And, and locations where modernity is thoroughly identified with the West, or with secularisation, for instance, um, that affects how, how ready they are to take those versions of modernity on. So in the Middle East, for instance, in Arab countries, because modernity is tainted by its association with the US in particular, the way in which modernity gets played out, it becomes you know, quite a difficult set of problems. You know, Mao and Crady's work demonstrates that. But you can also see it in uh, in China and, and, and Hong Kong. I mean, it's kind of interesting. I was in Hong Kong a couple of weeks back, and one of the things that you really notice there is how how absent 
um, comparatively are the discourses of sexualisation and the young from, not just from television, but from everyday life, the way people dress and so on. And you know, nobody would, would ever say Hong Kong wasn't modern, <laughs> but it's got a particular form of modernity. And now one of the things that, that's happening there is negotiating with, a with what's actually called Chinese modernity. There are arguments about what constitutes Chinese modernity. And, and that is partly about debates, but not just between tradition and the modern, but between the individual and the collective. And so there are there's such rich histories around that, um, that television doesn't drive any of that stuff. Television is subject to determination by those It's an things. index of some of those things? Not sure how indexical it is, but it certainly responds to it. Responds and it's one of the things that, that you note when you look at the different forms of television, just how, just how different they are mm. and what are the roots of those differences. Mm. And mostly they're not to do with... with um, actually, they're not so much to do with markets anymore. You know, it's much, those, those kind of national cultures of use are still very strong. Could you say something more about secularisation, a process that I always want to see more of, but <laughs> is now considered unfashionable as we allegedly live in a post-secular world? Well, it's one of the, one of the place, one of it's one of the kind of, um, what would you call it, one of the sites of contestation, I suppose, when you look at modernisation into countries, that, in particular countries that have got a strong Islamic base, and not just the Middle East, but for instance Indonesia or Malaysia, where there is a, a kind of desire for modernity and there is a there is a there is a particular form of modernity modernity in the way in which they build their cities and all of that. But there there are real problems between the old and the young about mm. how this plays out in terms of expectations of of behaviour. And the expectations of behaviour are tied to religious standards of behaviour. Whereas the young are trying to resist that because they they're more interested in being cool and modern and fashionable in the way that the West tells them. So it does seem as if something like Idol, for instance, the Idol format's a good place, where, that, where that's become a place where that, that contest gets played out between those who want to maintain what is essentially a religious-based set of common values and those who want to actually depart from them and make them secular so they've got less And less this, is a, this is basically the talent show mm. model, yeah? Mm that you're talking about? Yeah, I mean, I supervised a postgrad some years back, actually. I wrote about it in um, The Ordinary People in the Media book, where she was looking at um, <clears throat> what's actually a version of a Mexican-originated format called Academy Fantasia, and it's, a, it's an idol show. And, and she, was just a, she was a very good example of somebody who understood and appreciated and liked it, but also felt that, in many ways, it was inconsistent with the values that she believed in. And, and, and dealing with that as an academic project was an extremely difficult, actually, but a, but a very interesting thing to have to do. But getting, getting that um, accepted and understood, for instance, by her colleagues in Malaysia proved to be difficult. It's interesting. So you're sounding a bit like a, a Weberian uh, <laughs> redux, and I don't say that in a critical way, I say it in a positive way, because... I remember a piece that Graham Murdoch wrote a few years ago, you may have seen it, about the re-enchantment of the media, the re-enchantment of television, the opposite mm. of the Bavarian process. He was thinking about the place of religiosity in US television, which is extremely important in terms of amount of time, but not very important in terms of a number of viewers or mm. direct impact on programs. 
but it's interesting to think about uh, these things outside the Marxist frame that a lot of us would naturally turn to, where television is some kind of reflection of social transformations that are economically based, and into a Weberian one where, and again, these don't have to be absolute choices, things like levels of religiosity at, at, in terms of how people's lives are bureaucratised and run mm. are fundamentally more important to culture than the prevailing mode of production, for example. Yeah. You know? yeah. I think about that, and especially the way Weber, as an outsider, thought that the Chinese bureaucracy and Confucianism were world models that we would all have to contend with no matter what happened in political economic yeah. terms. Right? Well, that's an something to ponder. Interesting anyway. thing to think about too. But yeah, it is interesting. Once you once you go outside the Anglophone West and look at look at arguments about globalisation in particular mm. and look what happens to television content um, and how that works in places that have actually got a very, very strong political cultures that have a religious basis, then, you know, globalisation starts to look like it's actually not the... That's not the word you want to use. It's much more complicated than that. And, and often what you've got is actually the process that's strongest, actually, is not the globalisation, but a, a form of indigenisation or localisation. You know, you could just as easily make an argument about that in places like Indonesia or Malaysia. Now, wouldn't that then, in a sense, not be a surprise to you in that doesn't that take people like you and me back to the way that cultural studies thinks about TV generally? Yeah, yeah. Wouldn't that be something that we were, we've assumed for 30 years? Yeah. Or? Partic well, you know, as, you, as you're implying, coming from Australia, where, where you watch precisely that process happen as television's important, um, yeah, that's exactly what you look at. I mean, we're... We were, we were different in that we are an island and we weren't, you know, we're not like Canada where you've got signals being beamed over <laughs> over the border from day one. You know, we never had that. And so there was an opportunity for that process of indigenisation to happen. But, you know, it started off, it started off as you know, as well as I do, started off with 10, 12 years of almost totally British and American programming television in Australia. But that changes. So, yeah, it's, it's, not, a, it's not a surprising thing to watch, it, but, it, but it is something that does get forgotten in, in the orthodoxies of contemporary Anglophone television studies. Could I ask you, that's almost as though I'd, I'd asked you to give me a segue into that, because you've written a lot about television and film uh, and literature and cultural politics in many contexts over the years, I wanted to ask you to reflect on Anglophone television studies because at some level you're quite committed to that or have been part of that mm. and what we're going to this weekend here in Portland is in some ways part of that so where do you see it what do you see it as being and what do you think it needs to do based on the last five years of your extraordinary yeah, research? That, I mean really the, the message I guess from the last five or six years of my work really comes from working with people who, who don't take Anglophone television studies for granted. I mean, Jenna Tay didn't. She, she was continually looking back. She grew up in Singapore and talked about how television worked there, and so she, she already had that. She was looking at it all from a quite different prism. Working with Anna Pertiera, um, 
who, who has, it's not just a, a, an issue of upbringing for her, there's actually a very clear disciplinary and intellectual stance that sees the Anglophone stuff from a distance. And critically, that's been incredibly enlightening for me because things that I, there's no chance of my taking those things for granted whilst I'm working with Anna because she will see it a different way. And, and, and the way in which she will see it will actually teach me something. One of the great things about what I do, I'm working with younger scholars who've got their own disciplinary backgrounds, working with me on a, on a project that I've defined, but I'm actually really open about where it goes. So it's been an incredible experience. What do you think, you, give me a for instance, if you could, an example of where working with somebody from Singapore or working with somebody from cultural anthropology uh, gives you an insight into where Anglophone television studies needs to go. Well, as an example, I give you an example of uh, one of the things that Anna is, is, has found in the work that she's done in Chetamal in Mexico, in the south of Mexico, and that was the complete absence of any concern of, amongst parents of their children spending hours and hours and hours locked in a room watching television. Of course, in the US and in Australia too, you know that that would be seen with some concern. <laughs> and, and there would be reasons given, given for that. Whereas it, 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 that's, that's not the way it happened in Mexico. And to some extent, that's because of how the space of the street is seen. The space of the, space of the street is seen as potentially dangerous. It's not an open, friendly space. The, the home is very much an enclosure that is protective. And the children being in there is a good thing. And so it's what tell it, what what watching television is can't be understood until you know those kinds of What the alternatives yeah. might be, where uh, in some countries you might even have billboards that are saying, go out into the street, well not into the street, but go out and play in a park, yeah. instead of just sitting around on your bum watching yeah. TV. One of the campaigns uh, very similar to that we've had in Los Angeles from public health departments, where the kind of domineering white African-American and Latina mother is wagging her finger at the children, saying, mm. you know, one billboard says, eat fresh fruit. Another one says, stop watching television and go outside. And I'm thinking, what the fuck is going to happen to you outside? <laughs> in some of the places, the place where I currently live in LA, it's not That's too not good. good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so that, you know, just that, just that, the practice of really trying to understand how everyday life works as, as, as a kind of cultural economy, if you like, um, and then placing television within it rather than starting with the television. Now, you know, we start with the television and it looks more broadly than that. And so we've got, we've got quite reverse practices. You know, she'll look broadly and, and, and will want to consider as much as she can before she starts making them ideas count, whereas I do the classic cultural studies thing, I look at it a little bit, immediately have an idea and start writing it. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a very good practice that I've learned. <laughs> I want to follow up on, on that in a second, but, but first of all, let me ask you one more question about television studies. We're about a third of our way through and we want to make sure you get at least another drink out of this. Yeah, absolutely. In terms of what I think of as the good trinity of television studies, which is you look at political economy, you look at textuality, and you look at distribution or reception, whatever we call it, and nothing is privileged out of the three. Mm. I don't hear anything that tells me those things aren't still the right sort of way to go. 
Yeah, no, I think that's what true. What you're saying? Yeah, no, I think that's true. Yeah, <clears throat> that's that's pretty much the way I work. The thing that probably I look at least as texts, actually, you know, that's where we all started with television studies and cultural studies. But um, I think that was kind of a thing we had to go through to work out why it all mattered. <clears throat> well, it was then, an then we had counter to effects yeah, thing that's too, right. wasn't it? Terrible. Yeah, and I think we had to do that. And now I think there's not a question that this stuff matters. So let's think about you know, what are the larger structures that make it, make it happen. So what I wanted to pick up on in terms of your remark about cultural studies, I look at a thing for five minutes, I get an idea, and I write a book, more or less, is to ask That's you... That better not be the headline. <laughs> that comes out of it. To ask you about your, your new book, uh, What's Become of Cultural Studies, I think it's uh, called. Yes. It's just come out. And it is um, a bit different from your other works on cultural studies in that it, it adopts a fairly polemical... Stance yeah. at the same time as it has, you know, lots of research and it engages in, in exegesis as well as giving original research. But it's got a real point to make. So, what has become of cultural studies? Yeah. Well, well, one answer is read the book. Okay. No, but this is this is promoting the book. This little microphone here in front of you, Brad. Yeah. Well, not what we thought. I guess is is what I. I guess I, th I think that cultural studies has become a bit like some of the things that attacked and it's become a kind of complacent discipline. I think it's become distance from the culture of the students that it teaches um, and I think that's cut off one of the sources of the lifeblood of cultural studies, that connection to the popular that's a very lived connection as cultural studies scholars like myself have got older, you know, they don't have that connection anymore. I think that um, there has been a lot of tosh talked about cultural studies over the years. You know that the one of one of the things I attack in the book is this notion that it's that it's sort of an undisciplined. You know that it prides itself on being a kind of maverick, unruly thing. Well, you know it's not particularly maverick and unruly anymore. And it's I think that's actually quite a damaging affectation because it means that it doesn't have strong institutional roots in a lot of places where you need them to survive. And so it's a, it's, a, it's a kind of idealistic and very unpragmatic way of looking at what you need to do in order to survive as a discipline. The other thing, I think, is that it's, it's become a test case of what happens to interdisciplinarity when it goes through a number of generations. You know, it starts off with people who actually have a background in the discipline, so they have an epistemology, a way of making knowledge. And then they produce subjects and courses that are interdisciplinary and in a way they mask the sources that, that generated them. They, they mask the disciplinary sources that produced them in the first place. And so then they don't pass them on. And so what students get is a whole bunch of topics with a bunch of ideas and a canon of cool critics, but they actually don't get a sense of what are the disciplinary moves that you need in order to produce that knowledge. And sometimes there'd be an opportunity, you know, not, I'm not even just talking about cultural studies or discipline, I'm talking about, you know, history, for instance, knowing how to do historical research. You know, they're not, a lot of the students that we receive into PhDs now haven't been trained to do a particular kind of research. They come and do a PhD and they learn how to do what's needed for that particular topic, but not much else. And so it, it I think it's, there's an issue about what kind of training 
is provided to cultural studies students. No, I want a different one. Oh, he wants a different one, actually. Jamison's with ice. She'll come. <laughs> she hasn't got enough to do. Wasn't that so good? That wasn't so good? No. What was it? It's sweet. It's um, Maker's Mark. It's oh, sweet. Maker's Mark, yes. Very good if you have grain allergies, Maker's Mark. Oh, yeah. Is there anyone of its kind that does that? What kind would you like? Or what Could I have the Jamison's with ice? Jamison on ice? Yep. And I'd like uh, another one of these Merlot, please. And can I get a glass of water, please? Like fizzy water. Fizzy, like sparkly? Yeah, spark, sparkly, something like that. Okay. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you. Uh, so, <laughs> I mean, the book goes through a whole range of things. I mean, it's not all just saying this has gone wrong. There's a lot of things that it talks about that are, that are positive. I mean, that's how it starts. But it just seems it's time that, that the question was asked, you know, this is what we've got, and is this what we had in mind when we started on this? And it has to be somebody who's been around for a long time who can remember where we started, you know, so I guess I'm that, and um, who's sufficiently old and established to be able to bear what's going to happen next, you know, which is <laughs> any kind of big criticism like that is likely to attract quite a lot of, um, of, of pushback. And I actually am quite keen on that, but if I was, a, you know, if it was 30 years earlier in my career, it could be quite damaging. Um, so it's an old fogey book, but it's not <laughs> trying to be an old fart book. <laughs> Crucial epistemological and linguistic distinction between the fogey and the flatulent. <laughs> Graham, of course, is the author of uh, books like Film of Social Practice, which has come, gone into at least two editions. Four. four pardon me. Yeah, pardon me for four, living, yeah. Mrs. Mm -hmm. Four editions, which is really the first attempt to adopt a cultural studies attitude towards yeah, cinema studies or film yeah. studies. He's the author of British Cultural Studies, which last I looked had three editions. Yes, it's gone into three. <laughs> there will never be any more. <laughs> He's given up on that one. But w which, is, which was, for many people, their first way into cultural studies. Uh, film of Social Practice, I think, first came out in 88, mm -hmm. and British Cultural Studies, I think, in 1990. That's right. And they have been uh, both you know, new works of their own as well as exegetical works that contextualise the field. And in addition to those, Graham's written lots of other works uh, that look at, uh, for instance, national fictions, looks at the two editions, I think, the relationship between literature, cinema and Australian culture mm -hmm. from the beginning through to the 90s. Um, he edited this Nation Culture Text uh, book, one of the primary sources uh, from a couple of decades ago now, we'd have yeah, to say, of Australian cultural studies, mm. uh, big film cultures reader, book on ordinary life and TV, uh, book on celebrity television, uh, for example, I'm just going through, a, uh, sorry, celebrity culture, I'm just going through uh, very quickly some of what you've done. So you're somebody who's made an investment in cultural studies uh, before many others did. Mm. Yeah, no, that's true. It was. What turned you on to it? How did you get interested well, it's, in it's, it? It's an, well, I was, I, my um, disciplinary background was in English. Thank you. Fantastic. At the University of Sydney, where it had... Um, it, they went through... Thank you. Was they, this during the Leaver site? Yeah, they went through a big Leaver site split, you know, 30 years after the rest of the world, they decided they'd have a fight <laughs> over Leavers. Anyway, I, I mean, the thing that um, upset me about doing English literary studies was um, just how mystificatory and 
and really hypocritical it was and and it, it, it was very much in the days where you know you you proved you were a great literary critic by you know when you were brought in close proximity to a text you had to vibrate sufficiently and if you didn't vibrate sufficiently you didn't get a home out and so <laughs> did you have to vibrate in a particular bodily area no 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 they, they were they were pretty um agnostic about where <laughs> but they weren't agnostic about being able to do it so it, it was actually I really got jack of it by the time I I mean it took me a while I went on and did a PhD in English well, but that went, was in the UK and you went to Canada for your master's didn't yeah you? I did, did my did master's anything in different, was anything different there oh well they were, they were good teachers and they marked my work at Sydney they never used to give anything back it was a it was an appalling place to do literature that's why I went to Canada I just I was offered a position at Sydney and thought, no, I'm going anywhere. So I went to Canada, had a very good experience there, came back, taught for a while, then went off to the UK to do my PhD and was working with a number of people who had just started to pick up the first inklings of cultural studies. This was in the early 70s. Uh, I had a friend who you know well, Dougal Williamson, who was, who was then studying with Christian Metz in Sorbonne in Paris and he was feeding me French theory. So, I mean, literally, he brought... He brought over on one of his trips my, my first copy of Bart's Mythologies. And he was telling me about the Russian formalists, and so I ended up writing this kind of structuralist um, uh, thesis on American fiction, <laughs> which almost didn't get passed for, for being so odd. But at, the, at, the, at, at that time, I was just picking up on so much else that was going on. But I also had very direct roots into popular culture myself. You know, I, I come from a working class background, but I also had been a working musician by that stage for a good 10, 15 years. You had an album out or it came out at some I put point? an album out, yes, in the early 80s. You were a sensitive singer-songwriter. I was. I was. <laughs> it's amazing what you can get away with, isn't it? <laughs> But I wasn't doing sensitive singer-songwriters when I was playing in the pubs, you know, we were playing for drunks, you know, that was being a waste of time. <laughs> but, you know, I, I actually did have a very close connection to popular music. You know, I, I formed an uh, independent record company when I was a lot younger, when I was in Perth. and So I had all those kinds of quite direct connections um, that were antidotes, if you like, to the kind of rarefied air of English literary studies. So anyway, when I came back, I'd been touched by cultural studies and tried to introduce it. You came back to Australia in the late 70s, early yeah, 80s? Yeah, late 70s. And, and you head to, right, and the first place you're going is northern New South Wales? No, the first place Wales? I went was Curtin, where oh. it was called, it was then called the WA Institute of Technology. West Australian Institute of Technology in Perth. Yeah, yeah. and I tried to get cultural studies started there without really knowing what it was, but then John Fisk arrived. Mm-hmm. And he certainly knew what it was, and we teamed up and taught together for quite some years. Wrote a book together, Myths of Ions, that's right, with, with Bob, Bob Hodge, Hodge, also known as R.I.V. Hodge or Robert Hodge. That's right, and, and, <laughs> and has various other ways of being described as well, which we won't go into. So it was a popular. It's a great book, book. that sold heaps. Myths and of Ions, still in print, 1987, mm-hmm. uh, and really was an attempt to apply the the Bart of mythology but in more extensive studies, instead of those very little sort yeah. of three pages, uh, you... Yeah, no, we did a whole book. You did a whole book, yeah. which was, you know, had chapters that were much more thorough, I guess, in their approach. Yeah, I mean, it got us into a lot of trouble because it was a popularising book and it was aimed at a, at a broader market, but it kind of hit that broader market. I mean, I got actually asked to speak to 
a convention of the Masters Builders Association of Australia because there was a chapter in Mr Voz about the structure of the suburban home that they really liked. Mind you, they liked the, spe the speaker who followed me, which was Max Walker, who was a test cricketer. So they, they may have <laughs> a lot more than me. A, and a, a, uh, an Australian rules footballer. Yes. And an architect. And a writer. And a writer. So being an architect and a sportsman, yeah. they have... <laughs> yeah, no, I wasn't him. in the same race as <laughs> But, you know, so it... I mean, really it was Fisk who... I was young, you know, I, was in, I, I can't remember how old I would have been then, in my late 20s, early 30s maybe, mm. and John was an incredible mentor. Mm. Uh, he was an extraordinary teacher, the best teacher I've ever seen, and fantastic to teach with, although scary because he was so good, it was very difficult to, to keep up. But he brought all the stuff from, all, all the workbooks from the Open University courses and all the, the, the Birmingham Centre stuff, he had all of that. So I just basically devoured his library. And what it did for me was, was do the things that literary studies couldn't do. I thought that textual analysis and literary studies was actually quite a powerful technique and I wanted to apply it to other things than literary texts. <clears throat> and that, that was kind of the thing that motivated me early on, uh, along with the politics of cultural studies. And so I just spent a lot of time learning how to do it and then Ever after that, I've been trying to convince people that it was a good idea. I mean, the interesting thing, I mean, I'm known as somebody who's identified with cultural studies, but I've never, ever been hired to a position that had cultural studies in the position description. Never. Every place I've gone, I've had to set it up from scratch, and every place I've gone, I've had to set it up as a kind of contest. So... Uh, you know, probably my great achievement is university politics, <laughs> that learning how to get things through committees and so on was something I had to learn to do quite early on. And not only university politics, one of the things that some people may not know about Graham is that in Australia he's set up a, an entire cultural network of researchers, including lots of what are called early career researchers in these bizarre kind of fetishistic terms that bureaucrats use. I say this to somebody who was a bureaucrat for years. I used to invent these terms for fun and then watch mm. them become real. Uh, but Graham's cultural research network uh, across the, the nation was an extraordinary achievement and uh, he's also been an important gatekeeper in the best sense of the term for legitimising cultural studies and media studies within the Australian Research Council, which is the big peak body that gives out a lot of research money there, and within universities themselves. Uh, you know, you're what, they, what the French call one of the elephants, or in the United States called a big beast, in Britain too. <laughs> and these are positive terms, unless you're Dominique Strauss-Kahn, in which case, of course, they're not. I don't know whether he's still an elephant. But it becomes interesting uh, in that, uh, to me, you, as an outsider, are really the public face of cultural studies in Australia and especially the person who can be relied upon to defend people in the same way that Larry Grossberg in the United States, not so much at the public intellectual level, but at the level of being reliable, somebody who can be relied upon to defend folks academically and help them. I don't see another generation of people who've taken on that role in quite that way uh, here, and I don't know about Australia. Yeah, it's a pretty hard role to choose, you know, you kind of have to be lucky to get access and um, yeah, I mean it, it, all, what you say is true it, it, 
I've, I've been fortunate that I've been in a position to be able to help people. I've had the year of uh, it's, it, occasionally of people in government, but but more often in um, people in funding agencies and so on. Uh, when they've got bothered by the fact they're not addressing cultural studies as a constituency appropriately and they've sought advice. And so I've been the one they've gone to for, for a range of reasons. It could have been anybody else, but it wasn't. But I think it's, um, it's probably a little hard to see who'd be the next person they would turn to to seek that advice. I mean, the, one of the problems, it takes a really long time to get these things changed, to actually get... For instance, the funding agencies to accept the category of cultural studies took a long time, and for them to deal with it properly took a long time. And one of the and and, and why that's worth mentioning is that people have to realise they're in it for the long haul. You know, sometimes these changes you have to keep fighting the same battle for, with different ministers and with different bureaucracies for sometimes you know, ten years. The last person standing in the room. That's right. Yeah, and you have to just keep on coming back. And you can't get disappointed if, if, if they agree with you and listen to you and say they're going to do it, and then they don't. Because that's, <laughs> that's just the way it is. You have to keep on going back and back and back. And I think that's... Um, I suppose I've got a fairly dogged streak in me that makes me think, well, I'll just keep coming back, you know. <laughs> I wonder if I could connect that to a couple of other things. One thing you mentioned, one thing I was thinking of. I wonder if you could connect that for us to the, the P word, politics, that you mentioned a while ago. I'm now puzzled in a way I wasn't. I don't know what the politics impelling cultural studies is. Yeah, it's a good question, isn't it? It was very simple when we were all Athelsarians. <laughs> and I was, you know. I, I was certainly one of them. And I look back at some of the work that I was writing then, it, it's actually a pretty simple structure that you can set up if you want to argue an Althusserian thesis. It's not hard. But it's much more complicated now. And I think that that it, it would be hard, other than saying there's a kind of leftist politics and that would, that would change in different national locations, it's pretty hard to see what cultural studies as an institution now would see as its politics. I mean, I think there would be a critical turn in everything it did, and that critical turn would be probably anti-hegemonic, I suppose. But really, now that Marxism has gone, as, as, as you know, the rubric under which a lot of our politics were formed, it would be hard to say what, certainly internationally, what the politics are. I think what, what I'd say as a kind of qualification of that, is that what's been really good and really surprising and valuable about cultural studies is that it's helped produce politics in, in quite unpropitious circumstances. Particularly you look at the Inter-Asia group, for instance, and the way in which pol uh, cultural studies has provided them with a set of politics in situations where they're looking at authoritarian governments, uh, in situations where they're having to argue on first principles all the time. They're, you know, some of those regimes are actually quite repressive. But interestingly, cultural studies has actually proved resilient and flexible in ways that have enabled them to argue for politics that are pro-democratic and pro-independence and you know, they're 
particularly around sexuality. That's one of the areas where they've been really strong in Taiwan, I know. So it's, it's provided a means or a language, an institutional language, for certain kinds of political adventures and political developments that I don't think would have been possible within any of the other traditional disciplines. And that, you know, that to me has been quite revelatory, really, seeing what's happened in Asia. And I think that um, that hasn't stopped yet. You know, I think that there are places where it's really been... India's an example, I would, I would say, where it looks like having a similar kind of function there, it's getting taken up. I've got a postgrad student from Bangladesh now, and he's telling me that they're setting up cultural studies programs in Bangladesh with a similar kind of ethical, political um, objective behind it. So I guess in the West, it's, it's kind of what I was saying before about it becoming complacent. A lot, of, a lot of them feel the battles have been won, but in places where the battles really haven't been won, cultural studies is still proving to be a really useful lingua franca for people working across disciplines. And that relates to my the other question I have, which is in some ways connected to your political work, by which I'm referring now to operating within the machinery of government in the Australian context, for example, but taking it wider. Uh, Twenty years ago, as you know, there was a big push for cultural policy studies mm -hmm. associated with a lot of people that you worked with and and helped nurture and that you've always been supportive of. And this was, the, in a sense, a critique of textualism but also a critique of resistance, a critique of Gramscianism and an embrace mm. of the idea that, the, to use your Althusserian instance, the ideological state apparatus in fact wasn't always so wicked and impossible and could be embraceable. That seems to have died completely. Mm -hmm. uh, what happened to it, and what do you make of it? It's still um, you can still see it in the UK around usually around cultural industries rather than cultural policy as a framework, but you can still see yeah you can still see it there. Um, in in Australia, I think it's, it's mutated into something else, really, and probably. The bits of it that have lived on have, have gone into creative industries, um, and yeah, I don't think I think that the, the good part of cultural policy studies has kind of died in Australia, which is one of the places it started, uh, but it hasn't died in the in the UK. But I think that one of the things that I always thought about cultural policy studies, and I do think has been proven to be true, is that it can only survive under only under certain political conditions, and that is um, when you've got reformist governments who are interested in taking policy advice from outside. And are democratic. And are democratic. And, and if you've got governments that are conservative governments, you know, they do not reform, they don't take advice in from outside, they're not interested in cultural policy, they might, they might say they are, but they aren't. And so the framework or, or you know, the avenue for advice to come forward suddenly gets chopped off. And I think that happened in Australia, and that's happening in the UK now. And it does seem to me that cultural policy studies, while an idea, as you say, I was supportive of and thought was a terrific development and did really useful things, I think it just found it very difficult to survive as a notion without actually having plenty of examples of it 
being enacted in practice through yes, through consultations with government. If you take that out, suddenly it looks like a fantasy. It, it really relied, I suppose, at the time it emerged on what was a, a fairly mature social democratic government in Australia that was successful and quite powerful and yeah. was prepared to accept a lot of these yeah. ideas. And that stopped being the case five or six years after cultural policy studies attained a certain quasi-hegemonic position within cultural studies, mm. certainly in Australia. And once those conditions of possibility were gone, then all the accusations that were levelled at it, namely that it was co-optative, became true. Well, that's what it seems like to me. I mean, I was once very heavily involved, although in a very junior way, uh, but then really disengaged physically and was watching it from the outside, but that's what it seems like. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it ever... It, I don't think it was ever discredited as an intellectual project. Mm. Uh, I don't think that happened to it. But I think what happened was the conditions that enabled to prosper disappeared with the change of government and it took a while for that to happen, you know, the transition took a year or two, but eventually it was gone and so the government was only interested in advice that was going to help the, the support of industry or business rather than cultural industries and, so, and then, so then you have creative industries comes along. Now that's not just an Australian thing, creative industries is something that gets spoken about very positively all over the world. Uh, I'm astonished by it. Uh, I was, I've been living in Mexico the last six months till I came back to LA, <coughs> pardon me, and just before I moved there I was actually visiting and the people who were trying to transform within the government the entire domain of Mexican participation in culture are doing so under the flag of creative industries. We have people like Richard Florida now based back in Canada, but for a long time here in the US, uh, flying around the world, telling people what to do and getting paid handsomely to do it. You see these things occurring in China, in Singapore, in Ireland, in uh, Germany, both East and West, if I can use that bifurcation. I mean, this really did take yeah, it did. That's true. I mean, well, you know, this is a leading question. <laughs> There's a chapter. Graham knows me too well to. I, I not to realise that I'm trying to make him put his foot. I in know it. what I'm. I know what I'm now <laughs> supposed to do. There's a chapter in my latest book that is is um, is is an attack on on the validity of, of creative industries as a cultural studies project, and uh, and says that it has nothing to do with cultural studies at all and I've published that a version of that earlier in, in the um, in the journal Cultural Studies. So Toby knows very well <laughs> what I've got to do. Well I, I don't I some of my best friends were working faculties of <laughs> creative industries. I mean that's literally the case. And I don't care that they do it, you know, good on them. But I care if they say that they see this as as a branch of cultural studies. I didn't get in the cultural studies to help business uh, prosper. In fact, one of the things I got in the cultural studies for was to protect the rest of the society against business. And I have no interest in them, in them doing well at the expense of the rest of the structure at all. <clears throat> but I also think that creative industries, um, while a successful brand, and you know, a lot of higher education needs a brand these days, I don't think creative industries constitutes an intellectual project. 
and I think that that's the real weakness for me. I don't think there's an idea there. There was an idea behind cultural policy studies, I think, but I don't think there's an idea. There's, a, there's an opportunity behind creative industries. And as I say, I don't mind that that opportunity's being taken, better them than a lot of other people to do it. But what I argue in my book is that if this is argued to me as, as being the next generation of cultural studies, my response is no, it's not. You know, there are too many differences between what I see as being the point of cultural studies and what I see as, as being the value of creative industries for that to be a statement that I would assent to. Now that we're talking about your book, again, I, I wonder if uh, we could touch on what you think cultural studies will do and should do. That's hard. It depends where you are. I mean, I think that there are lots of versions of it now. And I think in Asia, it's, it's prospering and I think it will actually generate a lot of undergraduate programs, for instance, which it never did in the States, for instance. Uh, I, I think in the States, it's it, <laughs> what you do. By, by the way, just a quick thing. We've doubled our majors in the last 12 months. Oh, that's good. In four years, we've gone from 100 majors to 450. Wow. Oh, that's good news, because that's... For what it's worth. That's not what's happening in general, you know, that I think that the numbers in... <laughs> Sorry, just the numbers in the UK self-promotion. <laughs> Pitiful. But, yeah, look, the numbers in, in the UK have kind of... They haven't flatlined, but they're sort of steady. In Australia, I think they're, they're declining, and I think they're, there are places where they're doing real, really well and places where it's giving ground to creative industries or media studies or whatever. Uh, it was never big as an undergraduate program in the United States, despite all the hype about you know cultural studies take over the academy in the US. That was never true. That was total bullshit. And you know, it might have looked like that, but if anybody had looked at the number of undergraduate programs there were, they would have known that you could have counted counted them. You know, one or at best two hands. A bee's dick, one might say. One might. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I don't think that. Um, I don't think that the heartlands of cultural studies, you know, Britain, the US and Australia, um, are places where cultural studies is continuing to grow. I think uh, that's not happening. But it is growing in places, like I was saying, interestingly, in places where it's kind of needed. And I think that Asia is, 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 is the one I'd look to. And I'd also, I don't know enough about what's happening in Latin America, but it's abundantly clear that it's, that it's quite powerful. Oh, in Latin America. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but as a tendency within other domains. Uh, yeah, so that's a bit like the American model, where lots of people identify with, with cultural studies, but they don't necessarily teach a program that's called that. Right. Yeah. So, you know, it's, in Mexico, it's urban anthropology and mm. it's communications. Mm. And in Brazil, it's communications and, to a certain extent, film studies, I think. But, yeah, no, I think that's right. Yeah. Well, what should it be doing? Well, again, I guess it depends where you are, but I, I think that what's different about what they did in the Inter-Asia Collective was they, despite the fact that they actually talked undisciplined and anti-institution, they actually pursued institutionality. You know, despite what they said, what they've done is establish institutional presence. And I think that didn't happen in the US. It happened in Australia and it happened in, in the UK. Um, but I think it, it sort of it, it, fl it flattened out in both those locations. 
So I think really the, the affectation to be an undisciplined has actually meant that it hasn't worked very well as an institutional initiative in those places. And I think it looks to me like in Asia, in, in, in Hong Kong and China and India, um, Taiwan, um, they've done it differently. And yeah, I think they've done it differently and it looks to me like that's, that's going to be quite successful. In terms of where the future, where it looks like going, I don't know, I mean there, there are people, Tony Bennett told me years ago that he thought cultural studies was over, that it had done what it was going to do. And um, there were other things now, it had renovated the disciplines it was cognate with, like sociology for instance, and that in a sense there was no need for it to, it, you know, it was seen as a kind of dose of disciplinary medicine that, you know, that woke them up to the fact there were things they needed to look at and ways they needed to do that. And once you administer the medicine, they recovered and got better. And this is the Schumpeterian model. Of well, I would no, I wouldn't. Capitalist I wouldn't accuse Tony of being a Schumpeterian, but no, I think I think there there is that argument. And I mean, I, I don't think I wouldn't have a categoric case against that. I mean, my my personal project is, as you said, has has been probably more than just about anybody I know in Australia has been for cultural studies, you know, that was something I believed was a valuable thing and have spent my life developing and um, I'd be very sad to see it disappear as, as, as an initiative, but it might, you know, that might happen. Graham, we've got a couple of minutes left. I still want to ask you the 64,000 something or other fennig. <laughs> How many Phoenix are there in Portland? Not a clue. <laughs> Probably none. What is cultural studies? <laughs> I, I would have to go back and say, read British cultural studies. I'm sure I tell you that. Yeah, but what is cultural studies today? Ah. Well, it's. Um, I remember when um, Frederick Jamison referred to something called the desire called cultural studies. I thought that was an offensive thing. I actually think that's a positive thing, yeah. And so I would, if I was asked for a definition of cultural studies, I would start it by saying it's a desire for a particular form of academic practice that looks like it might be kind of out of fashion now. I'm sorry, I have to ask you another question. Okay. What is the particular form of academic practice that is desired? Well. The, the, I guess the kind that I that I practice it, is a theorised interest in the practice of everyday life and, and popular culture that that takes those experiences seriously and uses a range of disciplines in order to do it and tries to look at, at how those those practices are structured and what potentials they offer and what and the way in which power is organised through them and. Does that take you back to the working class boy from Sydney? Probably does, actually. I mean, you know, I don't, I don't want to claim that as the, you know, the motivation. I mean, that would, that I don't have that kind of sentimental sense of this being a mission. But it does mean that that being interested in that form of life is not a, is not an affectation, um, and it's not something I discovered recently. <laughs> so, to that extent, you know, that 
I, I feel comfortable about that interest. And these urges, these forces of the popular, which may be inchoate in certain ways or hard to articulate academically and may be very contradictory politically, they're really the focus, you think, Yeah. that we need to take. Yeah. Understanding the need for regional differences and so on. That's pretty much what you, what you would see yeah. as the project. Yeah, because yeah. It, it's a fairly pragmatic project from my point of view. I mean, yeah. you know, it, yeah. it does involve you in lots of quite sophisticated theoretical moves in order to understand what you're looking at. But I guess what's different about what I do from some of my colleagues, I suppose, is that my interest is, is perhaps more pragmatic in that I want to understand how it works. I'm not interested in theory for theory's sake. I'm interested in seeing what I can understand through it. So, yeah, I'm, I'm always wanting to apply what I'm doing. Well, Graham Turner, thank you very much for giving us this time, and I hope that when we're next together, I can draw you back into the pod for another session. You're very welcome. That's been fun.